Good morning. It is so good for us to be here together, to worship God, to praise Him, and to encourage each other in our walk with Jesus Christ. We live in a world, we live in a society, we live in a culture that uh, there are dangers of all kinds around us. And one aspect of that danger is the worldliness that we're surrounded by. As God's people, as Christians, we are called as saints to be different from the world. You know, we're commanded, for example, in 1 John chapter 2, not to love the world, not to love the things in the world, but to rather to uniquely be different because we are God's possession. We are His holy priesthood. You know, we are the children of God by faith. Now, in our physical world, there are a lot of good things. There are many good things that God has created, that God has provided, that are to be enjoyed. That we are to be grateful and use them in good ways, and give God the praise for that. Our God is a God of true joy. He calls us as His children to walk in the fellowship of that joy because joy is something that is to be shared. And we are to be a joyful people. Now that does not mean that we're not going to have sorrows and we're not going to share tears at times of hardship and suffering but we are also a people who are called to rejoice in the joys of this life, and particularly in the joys that we have in Jesus Christ. But worldly joys, worldly joys can be misleading. You think about it. Mankind in general, men desire the gratifying feelings, the pleasures of joy. That is, you know, we as human beings, we want enjoyment. And that enjoyment sometimes and oftentimes in our world leads us away from God. And it brings, yes, the pleasures of sin, the gratifying of the flesh, but with that comes destruction and harm and sadness and pain and suffering and alienation. Worldly celebrations, worldly festivities, these occasions that we see all around us are very alluring. And they're alluring because in those celebrations and in those festivities, they are often filled with some aspect of goodness, such things as good cheer, or kindness, or maybe a sense of unity in that celebration. But religious celebrations and religious festivities, although they can have an outward appearance of, of piety and devotion, while at the same time, those religious things can be quite misleading. They can, be, they can mislead us in such a way that the hearts of men are deceived, and they're deceived in such ways that they do not realize it's not from God, 
God, it's not of God, and it doesn't please the Lord. This morning I titled my lesson, The Misgiving or the Misleading Festive Joy. The annual celebration of Christmas is a festival of joy. It is a festival of joy that is actually founded upon man-made traditions. Man-made traditions that are both religious as well as secular. And these man-made traditions did not originate in God. And they did not originate with Christ our Lord. And as a result, though, many today are blinded. Blinded by this misguided, festive joy that really carries with it a sense of worldliness. Joyful occasions. Joyful occasion of good things should be enjoyed. God wants you to be filled with joy. God wants you to enjoy the good things that God provides for you every day, in every season, in every year. In accord with the wisdom that Solomon attained, Solomon, for example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Verse 4 and 5, Solomon expressed the fact that under the sun, that is here in this life, on earth, under, under the sun, there are times for laughing. And there are times for skipping and dancing. And there are times for embracing. Life rightfully does have many moments of joy. And those pure and good and honorable moments of joy are from your Creator. God wants you to have joy in the life that He is blessing you with. And so as a result, Christians, for example, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, Christians are actually commanded to rejoice and particularly rejoice with fellow members in Christ, with other Christians, who are lifted up in honorable ways. It's a chapter talking about the relationships of members in the body of Jesus Christ and how we are joined together in Christ by Christ and how we need to work together. And we need to work together for the cause of Christ. But in verse 26, in that membership, in that connection, in that association, relationship, he says, if, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. God is actually commanding us to rejoice with, with, with one another in those times that are good and honorable and right. Honorable celebrations are occasions that are, that are intended to be a time of great joy and a time in which you can participate in those things. For example, God approved weddings. God approved weddings are festive gatherings 
And we see Jesus himself attended a wedding there in the Gospel of John chapter 2. Did a miracle on that, on that particular occasion. But Jesus went with family and friends to, to share in the joy of that, that wedding. The joining of a man and woman in the honor relationship of marriage. And Jesus himself even used wedding celebrations. Use those festive occasions to actually teach us spiritual lessons. For example, in, in Matthew 22 or Matthew 25, where you've got a couple of the parables of Jesus, where you that is used the backdrop of a wedding and how we are to adorn ourselves and how we need to be prepared for the coming of the Lord. But here's the question, and that is. Do these honorable celebrations give us liberty, though, to participate in ungodly, worldly festivities? Because God wants us to have joy in this life, and because God does provide us joy, and because God does, you know, say there are occasions that you rightfully will share that joy with others. Does that simply give me liberty now to do whatever I want, even if it's something that is ungodly. Something that is very worldly and not of God, not of Christ. In 1 Peter, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 4, talking to Christians, the Apostle Peter admonishes and exhorts and teaches the saints, you know, saints like you and saints like me, about our life, and particularly in the context here, our daily life. And he talks about some of the things that we are not to be engaged in anymore. Because we're not of the world. We may live in the world, and as individuals who are sanctified in Christ, sanctified to be light and salt, you know, to the earth and the world, but yet we are not to be like the world and all these kind of ungodly things. And so, for example, in verse 3 and 4 of the fourth chapter, the Apostle Peter, you know, the Apostle of Christ, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, writes, but the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. And the idea is the, the term Gentile is often used to describe the ways of the world, the world of people who are not of God. And so he says, you have lived enough of your life in your past before you became a Christian, before you became a chosen one of Christ. He says, when you followed those desires, the desire of the Gentiles. And then he begins to list some of the things that the Christians then and sometimes Christians today have done in their past. But it, it is supposed to be our past. And so he goes on, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they, that is the Gentile world, they are surprised that you do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. So basically now they criticize you, they talk bad about you, they try to put you down, they try to make you feel bad about your godly choices, and how you are making decisions to not only engage in that, but also you're not going to run with them anymore. 
And so, for example, Christians are called to no longer engage in worldly activities of which God does not approve. So that means there may be some celebrations, not only in this season, but throughout the year there could be festivities and celebrations that might be very alluring, but because of the activities that are going on, you as a Christian should not participate. Because the world's going to engage in some of those things that are ungodly. And even among people of so-called faith or religious people who are devout in what they believe, even those kind of people sometimes will approve of what God does not approve of. And the, you know, the all kinds of uses of alcohol is just one example. Of the world and even religious people still engage in and find a way to justify it. And one reason they justify it by, well, it, it, it just, it's just the occasion. You know, I don't do this all the time. It's just the occasion. It's a time of sharing. But wait a minute. Should we ever participate in ungodliness on any Well, no. Another example is found over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And it's an interesting context because in the first century, when you've got people being particularly converted in the Gentile world out of paganism, out of heathen, heathenism, out of idolatry, idolatry of all kinds was rampant then. It still is today. It just doesn't look the same. It's the same idolatry that's going on. But interestingly, you had Christians, for example, in Corinth. They, they heard the gospel, and by the power of the message, they were convicted in their heart that Jesus is the Son of God. They were lost in their sin, and they came in obedience, in faith, and obeying the gospel, were baptized in Christ, and they began walking in the of life. But now what do we do? Well, because they're still connected with, you know, through their work and through all these associations. What can we do and what can we not do, particularly in our interaction? Well, a meal, a meal is a good thing. A meal is something that, you know, we can, we can share together. And, and surely when we're sharing our meals together in each other's home, those moments are moments of joy, aren't they? Whether it's a special meal like Thanksgiving, or whether it's just in the middle of a week somewhere, and you invite someone from the community, you invite a brother in Christ into your home, and you sit down, and you gather around the table, and you share that moment. Those are joyful moments. And that's a good thing. But... If that moment could be turned into an opportunity of promoting something that is not good, if that opportunity could be turned into something promoting idolatry or promoting ungodliness, interestingly, the Apostle Paul, Christ's Apostle, in writing to the Christians in Corinth, who were dealing with this kind of thing constantly, they were instructed in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, in verse 27, 28, listen, he said, if one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. If, if you've got a friend, if you've got an associate out at the world, and they invite you into their home to share a meal, he says, go enjoy yourself. Sit down around that table and enjoy the blessing of food. 
that God provides. But that's not where he stops. Because he goes on to say, in verse 28, But, but, if anyone says to you, this meat, this meat is sacrificed to idols. Okay, so they invite you to your home. You know, and you thought it's just, okay, I'm going to share, I'm going to sit at this person's table, and we're going to eat a meal together. And that's good and, and wholesome and joyful. But then you sit down, and they then start saying, hey, this meat that I am serving you, I offer to my idols. And by the Spirit, Paul tells the Christians in the first century, he says, do not. Do not eat it for the sake of one who informed you and for conscience sake. And so, go back to the question. Do honorable celebrations give men liberty just to do anything they want to, no matter what involved? Well, no, no. We've got to be righteous in our judgments. We've got to be wise in our choices and in our practices. And so there are things, you know, that we're going to have to not engage in, even though, you know, other times it might be okay. And it all depends of what's really going on, and us being participants in those things. And so, yes, joyful occasions of good things should be enjoyed, but do so with wisdom, as you are led by the Spirit of God, through His Word, to be a light for Christ. But, my main point today is really this. As we are in the season of our annual you know, time in this year, is that is, do not participate in the man-made religious festivities of Christmas. Now that would be quite offensive, that statement to a lot of people in the world. But I simply ask you to, uh, let's look at the scriptures. Let's look at the scriptures and see what the Bible says. And, and how we should be led by the truth of God's word, not the words of David Bunting. And not the words of any other man for that matter, but the words of the Lord, the words of God that have been preserved for us in the inspired scriptures. You know, in this particular time of year, churches of all kinds, you know, are engaged in all sorts of celebrations associated with what we have come to call the season of Christmas. As they, as they seek to memorialize the birth of Jesus, and then my question is, is this is what, are we instructed to do this? Is this what the Bible tells us to do? Or is this more about pleasing us? I would suggest to you that all of this that's going on around us in, in the religious world right now, it's, all, it's pleasing people. It's pleasing, it's, it's making people feel good about themselves. Now there will be an appearance of piety. There will be, you know, with their, there's a sense of piety. There's a sense of reverence that will be associated with it. And that will, that will have the outward appearance. But it's actually satisfying man's desires. It is pleasing man's senses. I don't say this to be disrespectful at all for the birth of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The special birth of God's Son was a vital, essential part of God's plan of salvation. And I cannot diminish the gravity and the sobriety of what God accomplished in the conception and the birth 
of Jesus Emmanuel. Christ's birth was prophesied. And there's a number of prophecies we get through. Isaiah 7 talks about the prophecy of a virgin will bear a child. A virgin will give birth to a child. That's Isaiah 7. Isaiah 9 talks about how this son that's going to be born, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. He is going to, and he will be called Eternal Father. It is in the Gospel accounts of Matthew chapter, beginning chapter 1 and into chapter 2, as well as Luke chapter 2, that we know beyond a shadow of doubt that those prophecies were fulfilled exactly as God foretold. Even to the point that Jesus was born in the very village that Micah prophesied hundreds of years before it came to be. So Christ's birth was fulfilled. God kept His promise. And God always keeps His promise because God speaks truth. And truth is an absolute. It's not going to change with the winds of time as trends change. No, the truth is going to remain the truth. And so, yes, God prophesied of the birth of the Messiah that was to come. And God fulfilled that, those prophecies and promises just as He said they would. And Jesus was born of a virgin in the village of Bethlehem. And He had become the ruler who is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And yes, even in Luke chapter 2, angels announced this great event to shepherds out in the field at night. So the birth of Jesus Christ, the birth of our Savior, the birth of our Lord, the birth of the Son of God, deity in the flesh, was Vitally important to God's plan. To God's scheme, not man's, but God's plan and scheme of redeeming sinners that, that, that we might be saved. Because for the Son of God to experience fully being man, for the Son of God to experience fully being man, it was necessary for him to be born as we are. If he didn't have walk in our shoes, he had to be born of a woman. And it was a natural delivery. The conception of the Holy Spirit was miraculous. But the delivery, the birth of Jesus, is what every mother experiences with all the pain and joy that comes with that. But also it's necessary for Jesus not only to be born as we are, but also to grow up into his manhood. And so the process was all part of God's plan so that he could begin the ministry that the gospel primarily revealed to us in revealing who he really is. And so the birth is important. It's very important. And it's not just important 
this time of year. It's important to God's plan from eternity to eternity. But the question I want you to think about is this, and that is, has God, has God asked us, has God commanded us to memorialize the birth of His Son and to remember His birthday? Is that what God has asked us to do? Is that what God has commanded us to do? Yeah. You know, for that matter, does any man today actually know the date of Jesus' birth? Does anybody today actually know the date that Jesus was born? No. Nobody knows but God. God knows the day that He was born. Now, we do have some aspect to try to estimate, and that's what people do. People estimate, you know, perhaps the year. For example, we're told in Luke chapter 2, verse 2, that the year that Jesus was born was the year the governor Quirinius of Syria mandated, we hear a lot about that, mandated a census. And so we can, we, we can estimate, based upon historical, secular accounts and things, okay, what year? But even that, we're not exactly sure. Because our dating system, A.D., actually, the man who was the originator of the A.D. system, missed it by a few years, supposedly. Oh, you know, well, what about the season? Well, the season, we're just told that, okay, it was, a, it was a season where shepherds would be watching their flocks at night out in the field. That's the closest we have to try to figure out, you know, what was the birthday of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Because we don't know. I find it very interesting, and you could you know, do this research yourself, before the 5th century A.D., so before the 5th century A.D., so early on, you know, among the bishop hierarchies, and that's a term that the Bible doesn't use, but among the bishop hierarchy in the early centuries, there is actually three dates considered by men. Now some of you know this, and some of you might know, not know. But there are actually three dates that were considered by men to try to figure out and guess and estimate when was Jesus born. What day was he born? January the 6th was one of them. March 25th was the second. And December 25th was the third. There's three dates. And it was settled you know, to be December 25th because of, uh, of a Pope Liberius. A pope in the Catholic Church finally said, okay, this is the day I did. And that became cemented in man's religious traditions. Here's a thought question. Could it be, and it's just a thought question, could it be that God did not reveal the day, the actual day that His Son was born? He did not reveal that day because... He did not want men to do what they've gone ahead and done anyway by their own assumptions. Could it be 
that he didn't give us today so men wouldn't do what they've done? Because God knows the hearts of men. <clears throat> did Jesus, did Jesus ever highlight, did Jesus ever encourage his own birth to be celebrated in a special way? Think about all the teaching of Jesus. He talked about the kingdom. He talked about righteousness. He talked about sin and salvation. He even talked about his death and his resurrection. Think of all the profound things that Jesus taught about and retaught and stressed for three and a half years is the estimate was the ministry of Jesus. Did he ever, in those three and a half years, ever highlight? Now, Matthew, by the Holy Spirit, tells us the record of his birth, and so does Luke, by the Holy Spirit, tells us the record of his birth. But did Jesus go back and highlight his birth when he began to tell people about repent for the kingdom of heaven is near? Did he ever highlight his birth? Did he ever say, hey, I, I want to encourage you to, to celebrate my birth in some special way? No, he didn't. Did he? And then you look in the book of Acts or, or even in the epistles when you think about, okay, what about the New Testament church? The church of our Lord that was established and grew in that first century. Did the New Testament church, under the direction of the apostles of Christ, ever... Did the New Testament church, not churches later on in history, but in the first century. Here's our record of the first century church in this inspired book from God. Did this church, beginning in Jerusalem and then that grew throughout the world, do we have any examples under the direction of the apostles of Christ where they annually commemorated their Savior's birth? On a specific day in some special worship. Do we have an example of that? No, we don't. You don't have that. And so, yeah, you know, you go back to the original question. Has God commanded us to memorialize the birth? No, he hasn't. He's not commanded us to remember his birthday. But his birthday is significant to the overall plan of bringing the Savior to the world. It's not to say the birth is not important. The birth is irrelevant. No, the birth is very relevant because the Word, the eternal Word of God, who was with God and was God, took on flesh and dwelt among us. How did that begin? It began with the conception in the womb of a virgin and the birth of that son. The tradition of the so-called mass of Christ's birth actually originated with men and predominantly originated in the, the Catholic Church. That's where it, it, the predominant influence lies. But like in the days of the New Testament, we are, we are reminded by Jesus' words themselves where man's traditions, man's traditions that uh, get established and then sometimes are kind of promoted or amplified or elevated, that man's traditions often will cause people who are trying to serve God, will cause people to actually not do what God actually did say. 
Don't you find that interesting? That sometimes a traditional man that's added will sometimes be the very thing that will cause people later on to not do what God actually did say. For example, Jesus himself, in his rebuking of the Jews, devout religious Jews living under the law, you know, he rebuked them. Why? Because he says, talk about their tradition, particularly related somewhat to the, the tradition of washing their hands. Now, we, you know, we were like, that's a good hygiene thing to do, to wash our hands, you know, not only on Sunday, but on Monday and Saturday too. You know, but uh, so that's a good thing to do. We know, but do you have to do it to be saved? Do you have to do it to be right, right with God? Well, what if you forgot to wash your hands on Tuesday? You know, are, are, have you suddenly lost your relationship with the Lord? No. But for the Jews, to wash your hands was vitally necessary to be right with God in their eyes. And so Jesus, in addressing that point simply says, by this, by your traditions, you Jews, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your traditions. Mark says the same thing in a little different word. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. So here we are in December you know, 2021, soon to be 2022, Lord willing, after centuries of immoralizing what God never commanded. After centuries of immoralizing what God never commanded, people of faith are holding on to something, holding on to a misguided tradition, and they're being deceived. Thinking that this is what God wants me to do. Thinking that this pleases God. And God didn't say anything about us turning this into some annual religious, sacred celebration and festivity we practice by the churches of our Lord and Savior. And so people are, are you know, they really get into you know, this season and they get into all the fanfare that comes with the things that churches do. You, you know, you've got you know, all the elaborate decorations, you've got the plays, you've got the musical concerts, you, 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 you've got all of these things happening, you know, and, and they say, oh, this is just wonderful. But it's not what God has instructed for us to do in our worship. It's not what we've been called to memorialize either on a regular basis. And yet people love doing it. It's not about God anymore, really. It's about us doing what we like to do. You know, doing like what, what looks nice to our aesthetic sight vision. And what kind of gives us a little adrenaline rush, you know. And, and it just, it's just so festive and so, you know, it becomes more about gratifying our physical things you know, than actually what has God said for me to do when it comes to remembering and memorializing. And so yes, sadly across this globe, there, there are people of devout faith 
you know, observing this, because it's been a tradition for centuries upon centuries. And while they observe this, they are actually neglecting, and failing to do often, when God has been very plain in telling us what we are to do. Such as memorializing the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the manner that God has commanded us to do. Has God established a memorial? Yes, God has established a memorial. Has He picked a particular day that this memorial is to be, to be observed? Yes, He has. And it's about the death of Christ on the first day of the week as we proclaim the death of our Savior, not only to one another, but to the world by the things that we do. And so like in the days of the New Testament time, it happens to the day sometimes where you've got people holding to traditions that did not originate with God, did not come from Christ, and their traditions are invalidating. It's causing them to neglect what God actually has said. You know, I can't but help but think of the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, he that doeth the will of the Father is the one who enters the kingdom of heaven. And he says, and people will come and stand before me and say, he said, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Or didn't I do that in your name? And he and sadly, sadly, God was saying to these very devout individuals who have done things in the name of God, the name of Jesus Christ. And he would say, I never knew you, workers of lawlessness. Very simply, they, they did everything except what God said to do. I want to end, I appreciate your patience with me this morning. I want to end with a Bible example. A Bible example from the past. That illustrates how, how man can take God's word and man can take God's provisions of grace. And actually, then misuse. This is an Old Testament example involving the nation of Israel in the time period of the wilderness wanderings. And those were difficult years for the children of God, for the children of Israel, whose faith is being tested day after day as they have to trust God to take care of them and to lead them to the promised land. And here they are, a huge migration of people in the middle of a desert. And so, as many of you know, as good students of God's Word, you know, they, they complained a lot. They complained a lot about their situation. And so, here in Numbers 21 is one of those occasions. Verse 20, verse 4, says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient. Do you ever become impatient? Well, they became impatient. Don't be too critical of them. Consider yourself walking in their shoes. They became impatient because of the journey. Is the journey hard? Yes, it is sometimes, isn't it? And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water. And we, we loathe this miserable food. Talking about the manna that God is feeding them. 
Well, God reacted to their complaint and their ungodly criticism and their unbelief. And we're told in verse 6 of number 21, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. This is not a garden snake. Yeah, this, this, is, this is a venomous viper, a venomous snake of some kind. Sounds pretty fatal. You get bit, you die. In verse 7, so they reacted like we would have reacted. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord, and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard on a pole. So you got this basically a statue of a bronze snake up on a pole. And it says that it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. What an interesting solution. They said, God, we sin, take the snakes away. God didn't take the snakes away. Instead, he provided a means that they could live. He provided a way that Israel would live and not die, even if they were bit. And I think there's a number of lessons you can kind of stay here. One, sin has consequences. That's a big one. Two, God extended grace. God extended grace. This snake on a pole in the middle of, of, of the camp of, of this you know, huge migration of a nation was grace on God's part. Their sin brought those snakes. It's their own sin that brought the consequence of their action and God provided grace but that grace required of them an obedient faith. They had to believe and obey God enough that they would go look at that snake to attain the compassionate mercy of their, of their God. God says, you can live, but you're going to have to do something. You're going to have to trust me enough, listen to me, and do what I tell you. And he says, and you'll live. Sin has consequences. God extends grace, and an obedient faith is required for God's compassion and mercy to be attained. Very similarly, the same principle applies to us as well today. Christ, in a sense, is that serpent because he has been lifted up on God's standard on the cross. And in through Him is God's grace being extended to you to humanity, but we have to have enough faith to do what Jesus says. And if we do, God will forgive us of all our sins, and we are promised that. But now, centuries later, centuries later, centuries later, in the time period of the divided kingdom, so you go all the way to 2 Kings, a lot of history has happened. 
between Numbers 21 and 2 Kings 18. So now we are in, in the time of the divided, divided kingdom. The northern tribes are already in Assyrian captivity. Hezekiah is the king in Judah. And he is a good king. He is an amazingly good king. Who accomplished great spiritual uh, renewal and restoration. Listen to what Hezekiah does. In 2 Kings 18, verse 3, that is, Hezekiah did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the asherah. So talk about the idols and things that have been introduced and brought among them. So Hezekiah becomes a king. He, he is a man of God. He's a, a, a devout man of faith. And he determined to clean up the mess. Not just physically, but spiritually. And so he starts removing all of those high places and all of those pillars and cutting down these things, these so-called sacred groves. And notice what it says in that same verse. Here, here, here's our point. He also, aside from all that, he also broke in pieces the bronze serpent Wait a minute. What are you talking about? He says, he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. You're talking about centuries later. What happened to that bronze, bronze serpent? We're being told what happened to that bronze serpent. That bronze serpent was, was put in the camp for a very, very, a very specific reason, for a very specific purpose, to provide God's grace to those who are bitten by a snake. Now, a century later, King Hezekiah finds that bronze serpent. They still have that snake on a pole. It's a statue. It's a bronze snake on a pole. He finds it, the very one that Moses made. So they have been carrying this thing around since that time. He goes there, for until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. Wait a minute. Is that what God told them to do with that thing? No, the only, the only thing that they were to look at if they were bit. That's it. That's all they were supposed to do. They were to look at this statue if they got bit by one of those vipers, one of those serpents. That's it. But centuries later, and for centuries, they had been carrying around this statue of a snake that was an amazing demonstration of God's grace, God's compassion, God's mercy, and they, and they had been burning incense to it. They have basically been worshiping it. They said they even, they even you know, gave it a name. It was called Nuhashtan. What did they do? They turned this thing into a religious relic. They turned it into a religious relic. And they're doing what they were told not to do. They were doing something that God did not say to do with it. They were doing something that was different from what God said. They were not keeping God's word. They were not following God's law. It took a King Hezekiah. It took a man like King Hezekiah to finally destroy and get rid of what had been polluting their worship for years. <clears throat> Think about all the previous kings before Hezekiah. Good kings. They didn't do it. It took King Hezekiah 
to get that statue and break it up and get rid of it. Because it had become a sacred relic that had caused them to not obey God. Interesting how the examples of the past can illustrate so well and so simply the danger we face in modern times. That if we're not careful, we can take something from the Bible, we can take something from Scripture, and we can turn that, and we can change it, and we can start doing something with it that God never said to do. That God never intended it to be used that way. The amazing birth, and it is amazing. It's a wonder. The amazing birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, was never intended for it to be turned into something that God didn't command us to do. That wasn't the story of the birth of Christ is not to, you know, us to take this and, and start doing something with it that God never intended. The story of the birth of Jesus is so that we can be that more convicted that Jesus is the Son of God. That's why. To convince us that from the very moment of his conception to his resurrection and ascension, everything that he did was in perfect harmony, perfect fulfillment to God's plan so that you and I can have a redeemer. So you and I can have a king, a ruler, a savior. It was not intended for us to take this day of Jesus' birth and turn it into some religious relic or turn it into some holy day that God didn't establish. If God wanted a, a, a holy day to be established, yeah, He would have yeah, instituted He would have told us. Just like when he, when he told the Jews on the law, remember the Sabbath. If He wanted it to be a holy day, He would have told us. He didn't tell us. And so, be wise as you enjoy the festivities of the season. As you enjoy the good things that God has given you, family, friends, meal shares, be wise in what you do, but don't participate in things that are not of God, that are not of Christ, and that are a departure from the truth. Even shared with me just this past week as we were talking about this subject. He shared with me a saying that you know, he, you know, he has, had come across, heard, I don't know exactly when or where or who he got it from. But the saying is, O come, let us adore him. It's a beautiful song. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us be adored. What's happening? That's exactly what's happening. We've come to a time in the world that people want to adore God, adore Christ in their way. And they're actually ignoring what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures is the power. The Scriptures is the truth. Man's religious traditions will not give us you know, salvation. They don't give us the liberty to ignore actually what God says. Not only about the Lord's Supper, but everything. What God says about what we must do to be saved. A lot of people ignore the significance and the importance of baptism. 
that we're buried with Christ in the baptism, that we may be raised up and walk with life. People will celebrate the season, but they will not submit in obedience to Christ in baptism and be cleansed by the power of Jesus. Or maybe it's their personal life. On the one hand, they will celebrate the season and they will live a life of dissipation. Justifying you know, their worldliness. Suggesting that God's grace gives me liberty to stay in my sin. Or maybe it's our relationships. It could be anything that we can take a tradition and we can get so excited about the tradition of men that had the desire to order God and we can forget the very words of life. Those words are not my words that will save you. My words will not save you a bit. God's words will. And it's His word that you will be judged by. And you believe Jesus to be the Christ. You believe that with all your heart. Rightfully so, you should, because He is. He was born of a virgin, just as God says. And He died on the cross for your sins. And He lives forever. King and Lord. <clears throat> it is our call to submit completely to Him. And the birth that Jesus wants you to be concerned about is your birth. When he says, unless you're born again, you will not enter the kingdom of God. That's the birth that we need to focus on. That's the birth that we need to proclaim. Yes, the birth of Christ is one of the many evidences that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God, our Savior and Redeemer. And he says, unless you are born again, you will not enter heaven. If you believe Jesus to be the cross, that you've not rendered obedience to him, we want to urge you. This very hour to We are ready to help you with that. If you're willing to confess your faith unashamedly with your mouth before others, that He is the Son of God. And repent of the sins of your past and submit yourself in baptism. We will be glad and joyful to assist you in that. If you are a Christian, you've done that. And perhaps, like many of us in our past, at time, from time to time, have stumbled because of the allurements of the world. Perhaps there is some sin in your life that you've not made right with God. And we can assist you in that. We want to encourage you. Repent of that. Confess that to your Heavenly Father. We'll be glad to pray with you, to pray for you. Whatever your spiritual need may be today, our greatest concern is that you be right with God. So you can anchor yourself to eternity in heaven. Let you come. Make your wishes known as you come forward as we stand and sing this song this morning.